Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... Marriages shouldn't begin with the idea of change, meaning you shouldn't commit your life to someone who you hope, above all hopes, will completely change who they are as a person. On May 20th, 1990, a woman was found dead, and at the center of her murder was a spouse who she thought needed to change. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. For most of her life, Michelle Lynn Kosalek, born Robert Kosalek on April 10th, 1949, had difficulty finding a medical professional who took her gender dysphoria seriously, falling prey to a dangerous doctor when she was just 18 years old who offered her hormone therapy in exchange for sex. Hormones she was able to obtain for several months from 1971 to 1972 and, for the first time in her life, said she felt normal. Unfortunately, Michelle experienced a drug relapse that sent her to a rehab center where she met a woman named Cheryl McCall. Cheryl was a volunteer counselor at the facility and felt as though all Michelle needed to identify as a male again was the love of a, quote, good woman. The pair were married, though, as you can imagine, it did little to change how Michelle felt about her life and the body she was born in. On May 20th, 1990, Cheryl McCall's body was discovered in the back seat of her car, which was parked in the lot of the Emerald Square Mall in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. 
The 36-year-old was nude and, as far as the police could tell, was strangled to death with a rope and a piece of piano wire that was pulled so tightly it nearly severed her head. Shortly after this horrific discovery, Michelle called the local police and told them that she was concerned that her wife had not returned home that evening, asking if there had been any reported car accidents in the area. They informed her that they had found Cheryl's car and asked Michelle to come into the station for more information. She agreed and asked an officer to come get her. Given their marriage, Michelle was immediately questioned about the murder and during their second round of questioning, informed her that she was officially a suspect in her wife's murder. She responded by telling police she was going to get a lawyer and left. That was on May 21st, 1990. Later that evening, just after midnight, Michelle Kosalak crashed her car in Bedford. When police arrived at the scene, they assumed Michelle, who was dressed in women's clothing at the time, was heavily intoxicated. But when they breathalyzed her, she came up sober, so they called her a cab and sent her on her way. Then, on May 24th, she was pulled over for speeding and pleaded with the officer for help obtaining psychiatric services. He obliged, and she was transported to the psychiatric unit of a New York hospital, where, because she was still a suspect in Cheryl's murder, she was transferred back to Massachusetts and placed under arrest. Michelle Kosalak was officially indicted for Cheryl's murder on May 30th, 1990. She pleaded not guilty on October 3rd and was held without bail while awaiting her trial. It was during that waiting period that, two and a half years after the murder, Michelle gave a series of recorded interviews in which she gave the details of her crime. According to Michelle, on the day of the murder, Cheryl returned to their shared home and found Michelle dressed in her clothing. Enraged, Cheryl began screaming at Michelle, and before they knew it, an all-out brawl was taking place inside of their condominium. At some point, Cheryl threw boiling tea on either Michelle's face or genitals, and Michelle responded by knocking her wife down. That's when Cheryl grabbed a butcher knife and started to chase Michelle around the house. Fearful for her life, or so the story goes, Michelle picked up a piece of wire that had been sitting on the table. She said the next thing she remembered was waking up days later in the psychiatric unit of the hospital. She continued by saying, quote, apparently I did take her life. It was probably in self-defense. A month or so after giving these interviews, Michelle began a write-in campaign for the office of Bristol County Sheriff after unsuccessfully suing the acting sheriff for violating her civil rights. She said that he was denying her the medically prescribed treatments for her gender dysphoria, which forced her to take birth control pills, the only hormones she could get, twice attempting her own life and attempting to perform her own self-castration. Michelle's trial officially began on January 14, 1993, and during jury selection, each potential juror was asked if they had any issue with the male-born defendant being emotionally and psychologically female, therefore wearing female-gendered clothing and using the female pronouns. Those who said no were allowed to serve. While in trial, Michelle made no attempts to deny strangling Cheryl to death but did say she had no recollection of the event and experienced a four-day blackout following the murder. The prosecution, however, stated that Michelle had some control over her faculties, given how she disposed of the body, disguising the murder to look like a sex crime, and how she fled to New York. 
At the end of the trial, Michelle was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. She was shipped off to, and still remains, in a male prison in Norfolk, Massachusetts. While behind bars, Michelle has made multiple attempts to sue the Massachusetts Department of Corrections for violation of rights under the Eighth Amendment. Some she has won, like in 2002 when she won the suit that gave her hormone replacement therapy as well as psychotherapy. But many have been lost, like in 2009 when she lost her eighth lawsuit after an attempt to force the Department of Corrections to provide electrolysis to remove her facial hair. And in 2006 when she argued that the refusal to provide gender-affirming surgery constituted as cruel and unusual punishment. On September 4th, 2012, U.S. District Judge Mark Wolf ruled that the Massachusetts Department of Corrections had violated Michelle's constitutional rights by denying the surgery and ordered that the Department of Corrections hire an independent expert to determine what was medically necessary for her treatment and that the department would provide her with what she needed. Not just that, but he announced the following December that, pending the outcome of the case on appeal, he was prepared to require the state itself to reimburse Michelle's attorneys for their work on the case, which at that point was more than $700,000 worth of legal services. Her attorneys then offered to forego that payment and the pending appeal if the state would agree to cover the cost of Michelle's surgery. This, of course, caused a massive debate between the government officials, taxpayers, and Cheryl's remaining family. While many were angry that a convicted murderer would receive such a pricey operation on the state's dime, others pointed out that the cost of the surgery would be offset by housing Michelle in a women's prison, which is much less expensive than a men's prison, as well as all of the costs associated with Michelle's continued attacks on her own body. Many pointed out that, to them, the procedure was simply unnecessary, and it wasn't even recognized by most insurance companies, while a large group argued the psychological ramifications of forcing Michelle to continue life as a male physically. The Department of Corrections appealed Judge Wolf's decision in 2014, and in a two-to-one vote, the First Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of Michelle Kosalek, stating that part of her Eighth Amendment rights included quote, receiving medically necessary treatment, even if that treatment strikes some as odd or unorthodox. Unfortunately, the full First Circuit Court felt differently, ruled against her, and in 2015, the Supreme Court chose not to hear the appeal, therefore rejecting the request fully. Michelle Kosalek remains in a men's prison and has since become a symbol for the poor treatment of transgendered inmates. Though many states have allowed for psychotherapy and, in some small cases, hormone shots, no inmate has ever received the gender-affirming surgery. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on May 21st. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime-obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.